The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. I am so excited about this one. Very, very honored to have as our guest Dr. Bruce Grayson probably the world's leading medical expert on near-death experiences. We are going to talk all about his latest book, his new book, and just dive into that whole subject. And I have to tell you, uh, I was finishing the book on the way here today. Today, I'm coming to you from Ogden, Utah. Hill Air Force Base is where we're camped out for the night. So if you hear a big roar in the background, that's probably (laughs) a fighter jet, an F-35 or an F-16, because we're right near the runway. And as uh, we say, that's the sound of freedom, Ty was just saying about 10 minutes ago. But uh, on the way here, I was just finishing his book, and I, I'm so grateful that I have a, I received a copy of the book, a beautiful hard copy, but I also received an advanced copy in paperback. And I'm so glad because this paperback copy is now so dog-eared. I have a habit of doing that when I read a book, and it's just covered with pages dog-eared once I loaned a book of mine to a neighbor and she uh, gave it back she said Suzanne all your pages were bent over so I unbent them for you (laughs) 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 well I can hear Dr. Uh, Grace and Bruce laughing in the background let me just introduce him to all of you first before I bring him in he's professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the UVA School of Medicine he served on the medical school faculty at the universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was, a, this is a biggie for me because of my association with the International Association of Near-Death Studies, IANS. He's a co-founder of that wonderful, wonderful organization and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. His award-winning research led him to become a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. And I love that because so many um Scientists and doctors are hesitant to look into issues like this, and instead, Bruce has just gone beyond that and is is lauded for it. And I want to talk about this before the show's over. He was invited by the Dalai Lama to participate in a dialogue between Western scientists and Buddhist monks in India. So, Bruce, Dr. Grayson, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Suzanne. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Well, it's an honor for me. Uh, Some of you may have seen the video when I was last at uh, 
one of the speakers at an IANS conference. I was on a panel, so honored to be situated between Dr. Grayson and Dr. Alexander, Dr. Eben Alexander. And uh, that video is on YouTube, Spiritual Notes from Dr. Grayson, Dr. Alexander, and Suzanne Giesman, if any of you want to check that out. But you are just a, a wealth of knowledge and expertise about near-death experiences, but it wasn't always that way. I love the way your book is written so personally, very, very readable, and the way it begins. I'd love for you to begin this show by telling us how you got into this particular area of expertise. Sure. Thank you, Suzanne. I, you know, I was raised in a, in a scientific household. Uh, my, father, my parents were, were scientists, and we didn't have any spiritual or religious uh, tradition to speak of. So I was raised with the idea that the physical world is all there is, and that when you die, that's the end, and that's just the way life was. You never thought to question that. Mm-hmm. So I went through college and medical school with that materialistic mindset. And then when I started my psychiatric training, in the first few weeks, uh, I was still a green intern, didn't know what I was doing. And I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room with overdose. I was in the cafeteria uh, having my dinner when my pager went off, and being new to this, I was it scared the dickens out of me. So I dropped my fork and spilled some spaghetti on my tie. Uh, I, I tried to wipe it off and couldn't, so I just put on a little lab coat to button over it so nobody was going to notice it. And then I went down to the emergency room to see the patient, and she was completely unconscious. I could not arouse her no matter what I did. Uh, but her roommate who had brought her in was waiting to see me in another room down the hall. So I went down to the other hall, other room to see the, the roommate, and this was a, a very hot Virginia night back in the 1970s. There was no air conditioning back then. My. And after a few minutes, I started to sweat. So I unbuttoned my lab coat and inadvertently was exposing the, the stain on my tie. I didn't realize at the time. I talked to her for 15, 20 minutes about what was going on with the patient, what stressors she was having, and then stood up to say goodbye to this roommate and realized my coat was unbuttoned, I quickly buttoned it up again. I went back to see the patient and she was still unarousable. So we arranged for her to be admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. Uh, And then I came back to see her the next morning. When I saw her the next morning, she was barely arousable, she was very drowsy. And I started to introduce myself and she stopped me and said, I know who you are, I remember you from last night. Well, that just stunned me, I didn't know what she was talking about. So I said to her, you know, I, I thought you were uh, out cold last night. I'm surprised you could see me. And then she opened her eyes for the first time, looked at me and said, not in my room. I t- saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. <laughs> well, that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine how that could be. She could only do that if she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And as far as I could tell, I was my body. It made no sense. She saw that I was confused, so she started to tell me about the conversation I had with the roommate. All my questions, the roommate's answers, where we were sitting, what we were wearing. And finally, she mentioned the stain, the spaghetti stain on my tie. That just completely blew me away. I couldn't imagine how it made no sense to me at all. But I couldn't deal with it, and I had to deal with her problems. So I tried to focus on her, stuff my feelings aside, and try to help her with her her reasons why she overdosed. And in the next few days, as I tried to understand what happened, I just couldn't imagine how this could be. I thought maybe the nurses were playing a trick on me somehow. I I couldn't understand how it could happen. And it wasn't until about five years later that 
I met Raymond Moody, who was working with me at the University of Virginia, and he wrote a book at that time called Life After Life, in which yeah. he used the term near-death experience and told us what they were like. And for the first time, I realized this event that the patient told me about five years ago was not just one isolated event. It was part of a huge phenomenon. I still couldn't understand it, but I realized as a scientist, I've got to look into this. So, you know, I started collecting cases, trying to understand it, and here I am 50 years later still trying to make sense of it. I love that. The, the whole premise of the book is that you are a scientist and you you don't make any absolute conclusions even at the end of the book it, it really models for us how we can look at our world from different sides yes yes i i think that yeah as i understand it now I'm, now i'm i'm very aware of the spiritual nature of us but i see science and spirituality as being two complementary ways of understanding our world and you really need both to understand it fully so when you say you're very aware of the spiritual world now, and, and like you, I was raised with no religion, and it's my understanding has come about through personal experience and through reading books like yours and conferences like the IANS conference. How would you describe your your spiritual uh, beliefs or your spiritual look on life now? Well, I've just seen and heard so many things from near-death experiences, and people have had other uh, mystical experiences that – just can't be explained in terms of the materialistic worldview that I was raised with. So I am thoroughly convinced now that there is some non-physical spiritual side of us, which in fact is more important than the physical side, and it involves things like our sense of connection to other people, to the natural world, to the universe, to the divine, and this is like the source of, of who we are and what it's like to be human. Um, and I think it, it kind of gives us a better understanding of why we are here and how we should be relating to other people. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, you mentioned earlier your your parents were both scientific. Your your father was a chemist. I absolutely love in the book where you wrote you were raised by a chemist whose perception of reality was defined by the periodic table of the elements. Right, right. <laughs> now, right. was your dad still in in the physical world when you began truly researching NDEs? Yes, yes, he was. Um, uh, actually, he, he, didn't, um, he didn't live very long into that. Uh, he passed away from a heart attack uh, when I was just starting, starting uh, that training, my psychiatric training. So I never really got to talk to him in depth about it. Okay. All right. Well, it would it would have been interesting, but I know yeah. that his, the methods you say, the methods that you were taught to to truly question things, as you explained when you first said to him that you were going to study psychiatry, really got you. That was the impetus for you to think the way right. you do. Right. Yeah. 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 So. You say that empirical evidence made it impossible for you to dismiss NDEs. Do you, can you exactly. share a few stories of some of the evidence that truly changed your mind? Sure. Well, one, one thing that is huge to me is people who leave their bodies during a near-death experience when their brains are not functioning, when they are totally anesthetized, when they're having cardiac arrests, and can report accurately from an out-of-body perspective what's going on. Now, that patient I mentioned before in the emergency room was one example of that, but I don't mm -hmm. 
have a lot of faith in that because I didn't know what I was doing back then. I was very flustered. I wasn't in the right frame of mind to study it. So I'm not sure that my memory is totally accurate, but since then, I've encountered hundreds of other patients who have better stories for me in which I've been able to track. Let me give you an example of this. One fellow was a 55-year-old truck driver who had chest pain as he was driving his truck. He went to the emergency room and was found to have four vessels around his heart clogged. And he was rushed to the emergency room for quadruple bypass surgery. And during the middle of that surgery, he left his body and looked down and saw his surgeon, as he described it, flapping his elbows like he was trying to fly. <laughs> now, when the, when the patient now told me about this, I, I'd been a doctor for about 30 years at that time. I'd never heard of anything so ludicrous in my life. I couldn't imagine this was real, so I assumed that he was hallucinating. But he insisted it was true, and with his uh, agreement, in fact, with his insistence, I talked to his surgeon a few days later. And his surgeon very embarrassedly said to me, yes, yes, that's true. I developed this, this habit. I've never seen anyone else do it. I let my assistant start the procedure while I put my sterile gown and gloves on. And then I walk into the operating room and I watch them working. I don't want to risk touching anything that's not in a sterile field with my hands. So I place them against my chest so they won't touch anything. And then I point things out to my assistants using my elbows so I won't oh, touch anything with my hands. And he wiggles his elbows just like the patient told me. And there's no way the patient could have seen this. And yet he did. He saw it from an out-of-body perspective. Something totally Did you unexpected. explain to that surgeon at the time how his patient had seen that? And if so, what was his reaction? I did. Well, uh, he happened to be uh, a, a Japanese-American uh, surgeon who grew up in Japan. And he just kind of shrugged and said, well, you know, my family is Buddhist. We don't have to, to understand everything. So it was, you know, fine with him. <laughs> and yet there are many in, in the early days when you started doing your research who unfortunately made the patients feel as if they were mentally ill for sharing these That's stories. Right. That's right. That's right. And, I, you know, I might have done that too when I, when I first started out. You know, when you approach these, these experiences with a totally materialistic mindset, and you can't understand them, the only explanation you have is that it was a hallucination or a dream or something like that. And you make the patient feel like they must be crazy to have this. And that does tremendous harm to people, to tell them that these experiences that are so important to them are not valid. Well, it's, this is why your work over the of 40 years has been a real blessing to so many people because as a result of your research, as a result of the organization, International Association of Near-Death Studies that you started, people are really coming to understand the phenomenon more. Yeah. And in fact, most of my publications in medical journals has been to demonstrate the differences between spiritual experiences like NDEs and hallucinations, and to point out that they are easily distinguishable if you just take the time to look and learn about them. Um, and, Could you and we are let doing us know what are, what are some of the differences? Because that's fascinating. Um, well, hallucinations are very idiosyncratic. No two patients have the same hallucinations, and yet near-death experiences are the same basic phenomenon around the world with different cultures, different religions. And if you go back to ancient Greece and Rome, you hear the same types of NDEs we have now. 
Huh. Uh, furthermore, uh, I think the most important difference is in the after effects, how they change people's lives. Hallucinations make people more frightened, more fearful, more introverted, uh, more alienated from other people. Whereas near-death experiences make people more opened up. Uh, they feel more enriched for the experience, not diminished by it, as hallucination does. Um, they're not afraid anymore, and they tend to be more engaged with other people uh, after an NDE. So it's a tremendous difference in, in how they experience, are experienced, uh, what they consist of, and how they affect people later on. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned papers that you've written. I believe it's over 100 peer-reviewed uh, Yes, yes. Documents and so, how have you observed changes in how NDEs are perceived by those in the medical field over the years? Uh, that's a that's a great question, Suzanne. We've we've done um, a lot of training of medical students, and in fact, I I do what's called grand rounds presentations to faculty in uh, different departments in the medical school: neurology, um, medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, and so forth teaching them about near-death experiences. Hmm. When we first went to, uh, like, the American Medical Association conference back in 1980, and we talked about near-death experiences, there was a polite silence in the audience, and, and hmm. nobody really would pay much attention to it. And now when we talk to these same conferences, it's rare that some doctor doesn't stand up in the audience and say, let me tell you about my near-death experience. Oh, wow. Well, they're very well accepted now. Um, you know, there's still a lot of controversy among the medical people about what causes the experiences, uh, what their ultimate meaning is, but there's no longer any doubt among doctors that these are real experiences that people are really having, and furthermore, that they are very important experiences to the patients and can affect uh, their medical care. So doctors need to know about them. Beautiful. Wow. It's, it's just we talk about consciousness rising and people say, is it really rising? And and right there is just one example of how people are more accepting of these this yeah. alternate alternate reality. Uh, now, yes. I'm going to go here to something that jumped out of me in the book, one of my major dog-eared pages. <laughs> there are little dog ears and great <laughs> big dog ears. And this one was the first time that I've heard this. And I always stress to people we are both human and a soul. You don't have to be one yeah. or the other. And here in your book, page right. 11, you say, there is no reason near-death experiences can't be both spiritual gifts and enabled by specific physiological events. Would you talk to that a bit? Because it's the first time I've heard, why can't we say that, yes, it's caused by the body, but also a spiritual thing? Sure. Let, let me give you a rough analogy. The desk I'm sitting at now um, I can describe it in purely physical terms. It's made of wood. It actually, it's, it's mahogany, and it's rectangular, and it's held together by glue and occasionally by miters. And that's, a, that's an accurate description of the desk, but it's not a complete description. This desk was my grandfather's. They left it to me when he died, and this is his legacy to me. And that's the emotional, or if you will, the spiritual significance of this desk. And that's an accurate description of it, but that's not complete either. You need both mm. the physical description and the spiritual description to understand the desk completely. And I think people are like that also. We certainly have physical bodies, physical brains, and near-death experiences are influenced by our physical brains, or at least our interpretation, our remembering of them is affected by our brains. 
And yet, there is so much more involved in that than just the physical brain and the physical body. Um, so you really need both the physical and the spiritual to understand near-death experiences and human beings, period. I love that analogy. You say that in the book you give the another analogy of the brain may be like a cell phone. Would you explain that to everybody who's listening because it's really a great way to understand how sure, consciousness sure. No, works? We're taught in college and in medical school that the brain, that the mind is what the brain does, that all our thoughts and feelings are created by the brain. And yet, in a near-death experience, the brain is not functioning, and yet we have the most vivid consciousness we've ever had, more vivid uh, thoughts and perceptions and feelings. So obviously, in a near-death experience, the brain is not creating these feelings. And this is not a new idea. Hippocrates wrote about this 2,000 years ago. He said the brain is the messenger or the interpreter of the mind. And that's been kind of a trend in, in, in neuroscience for the last 2,000 years, although a minority trend. And there have been different models proposed to, to describe this throughout the centuries based on the current uh, technology. And now we often use the model of the cell phone. If someone's talking to you on the cell phone, their voice isn't being created by the cell phone, but you're hearing it to the phone. And if something happens to your phone, if it runs out of power, you stop hearing their voice. That doesn't mean their voice has gone away. <laughs> the cell phone is not creating the voice. In fact, it is. there, there, are, there are thousands and thousands of uh, phone messages coming in all the time. And if you listen to all of them at once, you wouldn't be able to understand any of them. So your cell phone, one function of it, is to filter out all those miscellaneous signals coming in and just let in the one message you want to hear. And the brain does that also. The mind or that part of us that thinks, you call it the soul, spirit, whatever, has so much going on all the time. And your brain filters out most of it and just yeah. lets in those thoughts and perceptions that are important to physical survival. That's what the brain is for. It evolved as a physical organ to help us survive in the physical world. So it, it lets in those thoughts that deal with how to find food and shelter and, and a mate and so forth. You don't need to communicate with the divine or with deceased loved ones to find food. So the brain just filters those things out. And it's only when the brain's filtering is shut down, like in a near-death experience, that we have access to all these other wonderful ideas, this full range of consciousness, which is normally filtered out by the brain. And that is it. That is the biggest challenge for me as a medium, for my students of mediumship, to get past that filter. Mm. And once we do, there are the loved ones. Yes. Now, you mentioned there, they are still teaching this in medical school, that the brain creates our thoughts and our experience. Yes. What's it going to take, Bruce, to get past that? <laughs> Well, it, it is it is starting to change. Um, you know, there's there's a, a wonderful coma science group at the University of Liège in Belgium that's done fantastic work with what's going on in the brain when people are comatose. And in the last several years, by the last decade, some of their young PhD students have become interested in near-death experiences. And I was just watching a video put out by a Swiss TV company in which the director of this coma science lab was talking about the research on near-death experiences. And he said, quite frankly, we don't understand it. What we know about the brain does not explain near-death experiences. They're still a mystery to us. 
And to hear this renowned neuroscientist uh, talk about NDEs being a mystery that we can't understand, I think is a real sea change in, in how uh, medical science is looking at these things. So it's, do you feel it is just a matter of time? I think it is. I think, you know, each year we accumulate more and more evidence that medical science can't deny. Um, and as it accumulates, we get more and more people uh, saying, yes, this is obviously true. And in fact, I think it's a generational thing as well. Most of the medical students mm -hmm. that I work with are very open to this. It's a lot of the, the older folks who've been you know, living their lives in a materialistic world for decades and decades who have a harder time saying, yeah, maybe there's something more here. I love that. Yay. Okay. <laughs> and, well, the reason I love that is because the more people realize that consciousness continues after the death of the body, yeah. then we get into the deeper meaning of life and the, the things we'll discuss in the second half of the exactly. show, of yeah. course. Yeah. So... What sensory aspects of the near-death experience are universal? doesn't matter what anybody believes. What are the things that people do experience across the board? Uh, a sense of overwhelming peace and well-being, a sense of leaving the physical body, uh, sometimes a sense of having a complete life review, reliving your entire life, often encountering other beings, other entities, which they may label as deities, as God, uh, and they may see some that they label as deceased loved ones, deceased relatives, and we can talk a lot more about how they identify them in the uh, in the second half of this. Um, and then at some point they may reach a point of no return, and they may turn back and come back into their bodies, or they may be sent back against their will into their bodies. And then they find themselves back in the physical body trying to figure out what just happened to me there and how do I make sense of it. It's it just they the experiences really do sound wondrous, but not all are positive. We'll talk about that when we come back. Unfortunately, we only have thirty seconds and not enough time to go into that <laughs> deeply. In fact, your, your chapter I really enjoyed the one called "Hard Landings." I want to talk about that. Yeah. That that for most people it's a life changing experience, but not everybody comes out of it without suffering. Right. Right. Okay, so we're going to go into break now, but again, we're talking with Dr. Bruce Grayson. He's the author of After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. So everybody come back in about three minutes, and we'll continue with this awesome discussion. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. 
Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Bruce Grayson as much as I am. His curiosity about near-death experiences, but tempered by a strong skepticism, which I always advocate, inspired a lifelong journey for answers that resulted in his book, which is called After. So, Dr. Grayson, Bruce, what does that title mean to you, After? Well, the most obvious meaning is... uh, what happens to us after we die. And a lot of the interest in near-death experiences because they seem to tell us what happens after we die. But I think an equally important uh, 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 um, interpretation of the, of the term after is what happens to people after a near-death experience because they, they profoundly change people's attitudes, beliefs, and values. They're not the same person anymore. And finally, I think um, I would like the, the, the term after to also apply to what happens to people who read the book after they've read the book. Will they absorb the lessons of the New Death experience and find themselves also change in their attitudes and their values? Right. I read once that it's actually been scientifically proven. I don't know if this is true. Maybe you can tell me that just reading stories about others' experiences opens us up to the greater possibility of experiences like that ourselves. Now, in this case, not an NDE, but maybe a spiritually transformative experience. What do you think? Right. I think that's true. There have been um, five studies published in students, college students and nursing students, uh, in which they were taught classes about near-death experiences, and they measured that students' attitudes before the class, after the class, and then a year or two after the class was over. And they found that the students became much more compassionate, much more caring, much more altruistic after learning about near-death experiences. And why is that? I think one of the messages of the near-death experience is that we are all interconnected. Mm -hmm. And that you can't do something to someone else without having it fall back on you as well. This is basically the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But for near-death experiences, it's not just a rule we're supposed to follow. This is a law of the universe, like the law of gravity here on Earth, that when you hurt other people, you end up hurting yourself. There's no way to avoid that. And when you help other people, you're helping yourself as well. We're all interconnected. And I think How when you learn about the experiences, you absorb that. Yeah. Okay. How is that conveyed to the people who have these experiences that we're all interconnected? Hmm. Uh, sometimes it happens in the life review. Let me give you an example of this. Um, one fellow had a near-death experience when he was in his 30s, when he was working underneath his truck in his driveway, and the truck fell and crushed his chest. And he had a very elaborate uh, near-death experience with reliving his entire life. And he relived his life not only through his own eyes, but through the eyes of other people he was interacting with. And one example that struck me was, he remembered being a teenager, 
driving his truck down the road in town, and a drunk man ran out in front of his car, in front of his truck, and he jammed on his brakes and was furious because the guy almost dented his truck. So he Mm -hmm. stopped the truck, rolled down his window, and started shouting at this man. And the man, being intoxicated, reached his hand in the truck window and slapped the fellow Tom across the face. Well, that was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he opened the door, got out, and started mercilessly beating this man up. And he left him a bloody mess on the medium strip and then drove off. Well, when he had his near-death experience, he relived that event not only through his own eyes, feeling his rage and the adrenaline rush, but also through the eyes of his victim, the drunk man, feeling the man's confusion and his humiliation, feeling the 32 blows of his fists against the man's face. He couldn't have told that there was 32, but when he was reliving it, he felt every one of them. Felt his nose getting bloodier, felt his teeth going through his lower lip, all through the eyes of this poor drunk man. And he came back from the New Death experience realizing that we are all the same, that yes, there's some divinity in me, but there's some divinity in this drunk man as well. We're all interconnected. And that you can't really affect someone else without affecting yourself as well. Now, I've seen people who were uh, in violent professions, career police officers and career military officers, uh, who came back from a near-death experience saying, you know, I I can't shoot somebody. Even if I need to in my job, I I just can't do this job anymore. Mm. And they end up having to leave the military or leave the police force and train to do something else. And likewise, I've known people who were in cutthroat businesses who came back from a near-death experience saying that it makes no sense to get ahead at someone else's expense. And they end up either leaving their professions or changing how they do it so they treat Mm -hmm. their competitors and their customers much more compassionately. Wow. So that that question followed from when you were discussing how reading stories of others can help us hear. And it it reminds me of a question that, that... I've prompted people to ask, you know, does someone have to die before we remember who we are? And this is why uh, reading a book like yours really helps us. Yeah. I mean, I, I've awakened yeah. all these truths because of the death of my stepdaughter, but I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And yeah. so you have so many beautiful examples here from a very plausible yeah. <laughs> source yeah. that yeah. It, it's very, very helpful. But so, it's true that a near-death so, experience is only, it's only one way of getting this type of spiritual experience. There are lots of other ways of getting them. People get them through meditation, through spiritual mm-hmm. disciplines, and they're all different ways of getting to the same place, actually. Exactly. In fact, I have your book open, page 211, right here. You talk about MRI scans of the brain showing that meditation actually changes yes. the physical brain. Changes yeah. your whole thoughts. Bring yeah. No wonder I feel so peaceful these days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I wish that for everyone. So so many of the people listening to this program, Bruce, are listening because they want the messages of hope. They want to know that their loved ones are still around. And and the accounts from the near death experiences talk about meeting loved ones who had passed. Yes, yes, How do yes. they identify those? You mentioned that before we went to the break. How do they know they're their loved yeah, ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a little more than half of all near-death experiences involve encountering deceased loved ones, friends, relatives. And in many cases, they will say they appeared just as I remembered them when they were at their healthiest. 
know, they had the same physical appearance, so forth. But other times they say that there was just this, it's like this being of light, this ball of light. And I knew that was my mother. And I would say, well, how do you know it's your mother? If it's just a ball of light. And they say, there's no question in my mind, it, it mm-hmm. felt like her. It had her, her essence. Uh, that, there was no question, that was, that was my mother. I, I felt it. Um, I love that. And people, people talk about um, the, the deity that way also. Uh, people all over the world talk about seeing a warm, loving being of light that's all-knowing and all-loving. And if you come from a Christian society, you may call this God. If you come from a Hindu or Muslim society, you don't put that label on it. But they describe the same thing. But, you know, when you come back, you, you, you say, when I, when I talk to these experiences, they almost always say, well, there aren't any words to describe it. I say, great, tell me about it. So I know that I'm making them distort the experience by telling me, and they resort to using metaphors or uh, <laughs> symbols for it. So they say, yeah, it's God, but it wasn't the God I was taught about in church. It's much bigger than that. But I have to use the word God so you know what I'm talking about. And it's the same way with with with, with seeing deceased uh, people also. Um, it's someone who is definitely your mother, but it's also been your mother changed in some way. It's much larger than your mother was now that she's on the other side. I love that. I love that. So that's this is what I want people to understand, that we're just not these limited stories. It's so much more, and yet the story is still within that greater part of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let me put on my scientist hat for a moment and talk about these visions of deceased loved ones, uh, because a lot of, of, of debunkers uh, will say, oh, that's just your imagination. You are expecting to die, so you wanted to see deceased loved ones, so you imagined it. And it's, it's kind of hard to argue with them about that, except for cases in which you didn't know the loved one had died. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are many, many cases about of this that were well documented. I have one going back to the first century when Pliny the Elder wrote about this and the Roman nobleman who had an place like this. But let me give you an example that, that I investigated. Great. This is a, a young man in his 20s who was hospitalized with severe pneumonia and he had respiratory arrest where he couldn't breathe. And he had one nurse who was working with him every day as primary nurse who was about his age. And one day she told him that she was going to be taking a long weekend off and there'd be other nurses substituting for her. So he said goodbye to her, she left. And over that weekend, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that arrest, he had a near-death experience. And he found himself in a beautiful pastoral scene and there, to his surprise, this primary nurse, Anita, was walking towards him. And he did a double take and said, what are you doing here? And she said, uh, this is where I live now, but you can't stay here. You need to go back to your body. And I want you to track down my parents and tell them that I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. Oh, my goodness. And then she turned and walked away. Well, he later woke up back in his body in the hospital bed. And the first time a nurse walked into his room, he started to tell her about this. And she got very upset and rushed out of the room. It turned out that this nurse had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents had surprised her with the gift of a red MGB. She got excited about it, jumped in the car and took off for a drive, lost control of the car, smashed into a telephone pole and died instantly 
just a few hours before he had his experience. Oof. There's no way he could have expected her to die. Right. Certainly no way he could have known how she died, and yet he did. And this is hard evidence that a scientist cannot deny. Exactly. Something about his nurse was still living and still able to communicate. Wow. And so comforting for all of us that there's somebody who had just passed and yet she's face-to-face greeting, meeting, talking with somebody else who's passed but is going back to talk about it. This is beautiful. You mentioned that about half of the the research showed – people research show that they met loved ones who had passed. And so my, my brain yeah. as a medium immediately says, well, what about the other half? And it, it seems to me, could it be that they weren't across the veil long enough before they had to come back? They had to, they had other business to attend to before they came back. Just hypothesizing here about that. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know uh, how we can answer that from a scientific perspective. Um, when I talk with, with mediums like yourself about, um, the, the challenges in trying to communicate, what I often hear from them is that we can try, but the, the, um, the motivation has to come from the other side. They have to want to communicate. That's right. And it may be that, that some people, uh, they don't have issues that need to be talked about. They don't have a dying need to get reassurance from the other side. Or maybe that they haven't been in this near-death experience long enough to recognize what's going on with, with people trying to communicate with them. Sometimes mm-hmm. these experiences are, are very short, and they are resuscitated before they really have a time to get very far into it. Yeah, that was my initial thought. Interesting. Mm. Now, you you mentioned a minute ago there uh, the people who uh, criticized this kind of research. Yes. I loved reading the acknowledgments at the end of the book where you actually thanked those who panned your work and picked it apart. <laughs> right. It, it makes me a better scientist. To... Yeah, it, it, it makes me rethink why do I think this if they don't? What is the evidence? How can I get stronger evidence? So it helps me refine my thinking about what it would take to convince these people. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of those acknowledgments, my heart opened up when I read your acknowledgement, thanking your father, thanking your mother, Debbie Grayson, here's a quote, who taught me from as early an age that nothing we do means much unless it comes from the heart. And to do, and to both of your parents, you're thanking them for modeling for you that whatever you do with your life, the measure of your success is whether you've helped other people. Mm. Well, Bruce, I know that you you definitely are successful in that regard for all of the the many ways you've helped people to understand near death experiences. But what a great uh, mm-hmm. lesson for all of us! Yeah. I'm sure that's one of the I messages that comes from those who had the NDEs as well. Yes, yes. Let, let me tell you another story that goes along with that. Um, great. About ten years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the, the Dalai Lama's compound in Dharamsala, <laughs> India, uh, in yes. a conference where we were having. Western scientists talk with uh, Buddhist monks about research into consciousness. And when he opened the conference, the Dalai Lama said that both Western science and Buddhism are both empirical uh, disciplines. We both look at evidence and base what we believe on the evidence. But, he said, there's a big difference. That Western science tends to try to understand the world 
in order to control it, to mold it, to shape it. Whereas Buddhism tries to understand the world in order to live more harmoniously with it. And he said that that really changes why you look at things, why you try to understand things. Are you trying to control them? Or you're trying to live more harmoniously with them? Yes. In fact, when you wrote that in one of your final chapters, I wrote, wow, twice in the margin there. <laughs> that one really jumped out at me. Are we, you know, Westerner, Western scientists trying to control this world versus Buddhism? Same thing, but trying to live more harmoniously with it. That's an amazing point. Mm-hmm. Wow. So here are a few questions as we just dive into more about what you have learned. Does mental illness contribute to near-death experiences? Uh, the bottom line is not at all. You know, as, as a psychiatrist, that question came up in my mind, and we were able to look at it in a variety of ways. We looked at the incidence of near-death experiences among people who had mental illness. And it's the same as it is among people who don't have mental illness. We also looked at the incidence of mental illness among people who have near-death experiences. And it's the same as it is among people who don't have near-death experiences. So mental illness doesn't make you any more likely to have an ND or less likely. Uh, it's got nothing to do with near-death experiences. Okay. And here's one for you. What is this light that everybody talks about seeing? I mean, spiritually, we say we are the light of consciousness, of awareness. But then people cross the veil and they actually see this light that has an essence to it. What is it? Yeah. Uh, You know, I don't know how to answer that question, really. You know, near-death experiences unanimously say it's not like a physical light. It's not like a light bulb or the sun. It's something that's living, that's breathing, that's communicating. It's a living being, not just an object. And it's something that, that radiates warmth and love and acceptance. Um, and you, know, you can call that God. Um, I, can, I don't know what it is, but something that fits all the definitions of what the divine should be. Mm-hmm. So this leads to a, a tough question. If, if it is so beautiful when people have their NDEs, why doesn't everybody just want to get there immediately? I mean, we do, but what keeps us here? Oh, that's a great question. You know, as a psychiatrist, I was concerned when I heard that people lose their fear of death after an NDE, that that would make people more suicidal. Right. Because I've, ta- I've talked to a lot of people who were thinking about ending their lives but were deterred because they were afraid of what might happen. So, you know, being a scientist, I did a study of this. And I interviewed everyone admitted to my hospital with a suicide attempt, and I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of the attempt with those who didn't. And what I found was those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal than those who didn't have an NDV. And that that seemed counterintuitive to me, so I, I asked them to explain that to me. And they said, when you come back from a near-death experience, you realize that everything that happens has a meaning and a purpose. And that your problems are not things to be run away from, but things you're supposed to grow from, to learn from. And that, that when you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living. If you're not afraid of, of your life being taken from you, you're not afraid of jumping in with both feet and living to the fullest and enjoying all there is to, to enjoy. So life becomes much more enjoyable, meaningful, and fulfilling after a near-death experience. That is beautiful. 
you, you made another beautiful point in the book where I just this week found out about a dear friend of mine who is terminally ill and mm. tried to get I got a channeled message from my guides to share with her about facing her transition. But you made the point mm. in your book that even though people who've had NDEs now lose their fear of dying, they still grieve. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, we're, they're still human and they still feel still feel sad about no longer having them on this physical plane to relate to every day. So even if they may know that this person is going to something better, they still know they're going to miss them. And they grieve. Yeah. They can't help yeah, sure. that. Can't help that. Yeah. Wow. So talk about this reality like a dream. There was a really convincing story in the book about somebody who crossed over in crossed the veil, as we say, in their near-death experience, and then they came back and were very confused for a while because mm. they didn't know, is this the dream or is that a dream? Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people come back from a near-death experience feeling much lighter, much, much more joyful, much more loving. But some people come back feeling upset about it. They're either angry that they were brought back from this beautiful other realm, or they're sad about it, or they're confused like this woman was. And she had just come back from this experience that seemed hyper-real, more real than this real reality. And yet here she was back in this physical reality. And she wasn't sure whether this reality was a dream, or whether the initial experience was a dream, because both of them seemed very real. In fact, the near-death experience seemed more real than this reality. And she was just totally confused about this. And it took over a long time to work through this. You know, I have found in decades I've been working with this that the best way to help people who are struggling with anything about the near-death experience is to put them in a group with other near-death experiencers, many of which will have the same types of experiences they have had, and let them share their own experiences and how they've dealt with these issues. Uh, and that's that's a lot more helpful than just me talking to someone. Right. And that's what IANS provides to people. What is your yeah, involvement with IANS these days? Um, well, I'm no longer um, actively involved on the board. Um, of course, I'm a, I'm a lifetime member, um, and I uh, enjoy their, their conferences. I often speak at the conferences. Um, but I'm kind of uh, retired from, from IANS, mm -hmm. so to speak. And letting you know the, the next generation uh, pick up the um, take take on the burden and and, and run it. Um, so I, I still enjoy going to the conferences and talking to all the experiencers and so forth. Uh, but I'm not in any in any way a, a leader of the group anymore. Me too. I just love the conferences, and in fact, I was so honored yeah. to be the first medium that they ever allowed to speak at one of the conferences, mm -hmm. which was a huge yeah. leap for them for mostly scientific yes. uh, people with scientific backgrounds, but yeah. Would you tell everybody who's listening what, how anybody could benefit from IANS? Well, IANS gives uh, a lot of information, uh, reliable information, which is hard to get sometimes about near-death experiences. Um, they have a lot of literature on their website. They have videos on their website. And they also have, as you mentioned, the support groups in, I think, around 50 different cities in the U.S. and more in other countries where people can get together often once a month and just meet in an informal setting and talk about these experiences and what they mean and, and share their, their experiences. Um, and that alone is just very helpful to hear these, these firsthand accounts from other people. 
It really is. And so then they break those out sometimes into those who have had the experience and then those who just want to hear about them. So you do not have to be an, right. what they call an experiencer to benefit from those groups, right. which also meet right. online. But that was not – these support groups was not your original intention when you and I believe it was about four no. others started the organization. What was the right. original right. goal? Well, we were individual researchers working at different institutions feeling very isolated in our home universities. And we formed the group to sort of support the researchers, uh, to give us, you know, ways colleagues to talk to. And it quickly became obvious to us that our need was no near, nowhere near as strong as the needs of experiencers need, that they were feeling much more isolated than we were mm. um, and had no way of finding other experiences to talk about with this about. Uh, so we, it became more and more at a, a, an organization of the experiences rather than the researchers. Beautiful. And one of the, the original co-founders with you was Dr. Ken Ring, who, whose work yes. I absolutely love. And I love that you, yes, you used yes. a term in your book that he came up with, that he hopes that how near-death experiences transform experiencers' lives afterward, he hopes that becomes a benign virus. Right, right. (laughs) With with just one minute to go in the show, Bruce, anything you'd like to just close out by sharing with everybody about your book, near-death experiences, what your final advice? Well, I think the important things to to learn about near-death experiences is that they are very, very common and they're normal experiences that happen to normal people in abnormal circumstances. They have nothing to do with mental illness. and that they suggest strongly that the mind and the brain are separate things. And therefore, the mind can, can continue after the brain has died. And that they have profound effects on people's lives. They make us more spiritual, more compassionate, and they make life more meaningful and more fulfilling. And what I heard you say there then is that death is really just a transition. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In fact, you write, dying is the threshold between one form of consciousness and another, not an ending, but a transition. Dr. Bruce Grayson, author of After, an amazing researcher of near-death experiences, thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, thank you, Susanna. Enjoy this. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.